Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Over 30 years ago, Kentucky Humanities began a literacy program for Kentucky adults who read at a third to fifth grade level. It was called New Books for New Readers. The series of books were written by Kentucky scholars, historians, and authors with assistance from literacy students and tutors. The subject matter covered Kentucky history, literature, and folklore. Now, the University Press of Kentucky is releasing a new edition of one of those books, Heartwood, by award-winning poet and acclaimed author Nikki Finney. It's an honor to have her on the podcast today. Nikki, welcome. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm honored to be here with you. 25th anniversary of uh, this expanded edition of Heartwood Tell me about the call that you received from uh, a wonderful lady that we both know, Phyllis McAdam, and this series of books that she told you about called New Books for New Readers. Well, I had only been in Kentucky about five years, and I was really focused on my poetry, really focused on being a good teacher. And my second book of poetry, Rice, had just come out. And I was trying to get that out in the world. And I would see Phyllis McAdam at the Carnegie Center often. And we would, you know, stop and talk. And she was so involved in community, uh, so many community things happening via the Carnegie Center. And one day she called me. She said, I want to talk to you about a project. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I know that this is going to, I could just tell in her voice that there was something that um, I needed to sit down and listen to. She told me about the project. She told me about the new books for new readers series. And it, it was like an arrow that went straight from my heart because I was not a writer or a reader, Bill, that want that ever thought that reading should be some kind of elite act. It should not be something that only the scholarly or the educate, well-educated or the whatever you want to say had a book in their hand. And I could not understand why more and more in this society that we lived in that loved books, that loved the story, why was not more attention paid to the new readers that longed for a book to to not just read, but to see themselves inside of? Oh my gosh. When she talked about that, I said to myself, I can do this. I've never written a small book of short stories or narrative verse, always, you know, kind of stuck to the poetry, but I was so in love with the story itself. So in love with, and I was always challenged as a younger writer, still, I hope in the same kind of way, when somebody I had a great deal of respect for, who was a brilliant editor said, you would be perfect for this. And then I listened for the reasons that they gave. And I thought, maybe she's right. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could write a little novella uh, or a short story collection or whatever you want to call it that was not poetry, but had poetry in it. Because first and foremost, I am a poet. 
So she had to call me, I think, three other times. I think it was a total <laughs> of four calls. And then I was all in. I, um, I, I said yes, and we started the process of writing the stories. And then when we get to that part, I can't wait to tell you about actually the circle of editors, uh, these, these young Black women who had never served as an editorial board before. And how they how they treated me and how they handled me was just just life changing. It was life changing. Well, I, I look forward to to hearing that. Uh, you wrote um, in the first preface uh, to Hardwood, uh, which is uh, now been. Uh, you, you wrote a new preface uh, for the re-release uh, twenty five years later, but you wrote uh, in the first preface. Uh, I have never felt more honored to write a piece of work than Hartwood. And then you went on to say in this edition, this truth has grown even more profound with its roots spreading out through every book I have written since Hartwood. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a powerful sentence. It's a truth. It's a true sentence. Um, when I, when I wrote Hartwood and when it came out, I thought, oh, wow, okay, I've done this little book and I've done this right thing for the community that I live in and for the larger world. Hopefully it'll stay around a couple of years. Somebody will pick it up and find some seed of something in it that they need because it deals with some tough subject matter, I think, subject matter that we don't talk about enough. But as I was on the road with my poetry, with those books that I already had and the poetry I was working on, there would be people in the audience, Bill, who would come up to me and they would have a copy of Heartwood kind of tucked under their arm like this. And they would say, would you sign this? And I would go, oh, Heartwood, where did you find that? How did you get it? And it was, these stories would come out of West Virginia and, and, and small town Kentucky and the South, and sometimes even farther than that. And people would say, of all your books, I needed this story. I needed to wrestle with the things you wrestled with in this long way of saying, and I didn't know it until I picked the book up. And I thought, wow, there's something that's connecting with readers here. I didn't even know, maybe Phyllis told me this 25 years ago. I knew it was uh, GED students. I know these were students who were going back to school to get degrees who had not been able to do that. So I knew the reading was on a certain level. I didn't, I don't think I knew that it was the fourth or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh grade. I just knew that as the Baptist preacher <laughs> said in uh, my youth in church, I needed to make it plain. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm a girl of, of lyricism and metaphor and all these things that I love to sort of complicate language in the beautiful way. That's okay. But when I began to work on this, I understood also that my, um, my, my, the thing that I would be most focused on was not complicating the simplicity of human beings hating each other. I had to make that plain. And I had to say why. 
And I had to show what could be done to stop that or to alter that in some kind of way. So I took my, in my toolbox, which I tell my students all the time, grew as I got older and, and lived more and wrote more things, got very simple and very basic and very true to the word and true to the written language and true to storytelling. And so taking all that stuff off that I was learning as I got more aware as a writer allowed me a sort of deeper understanding of my world as a writer. It was not to complicate the subject, even though those things might throw a twist or might you know, ascend a, a different kind of ladder before you, you know, all those kinds of things that we do as writers. But what I really needed to do was make it plain what I wanted to say. And I'll never ever be able to thank this process, this project and Phyllis McAdams for the opportunity to learn that as a 38 year old writer. I love the phrase, make it plain. Uh, if we had all, if, if I had learned that much, much earlier in my career, uh, it's it's making it simple and clear, uh, clean. I know you use that in your teaching. Uh, yes. Uh, do you have a copy of the of the new release? I don't in have front a of copy you? of the new release. I have a copy of the old release. Well, hey, let me. The reason I want to, I was going to ask you to read this, and I, I, if people will bear with us just for a moment, I want. I was going to ask you to read the first uh, paragraph of the new preface. Okay. Uh, so let me just read a couple of sentences there because I think it speaks. It goes right to the uh, to the essence of of what you just said. Before Hartwood, I was considered by others and certainly considered myself a safe to say tunnel vision point in search of her next bright metaphor and urgent compressed line. I had been interested in all things words could do. I had always dreamed out my ideas in a kind of long story form but I had not yet gotten to the place as a young writer of feeling confident that I could sustain that form or any fictive character all the way through a traditional short story setting. I was always a poet first, but I was quietly and dutifully interested in all forms of written expression in which people worked with great heart and head to not be invisible, though the world sought to make them so and to never ever be counted out. And that's what you were doing and what this book 25 years ago gave you the opportunity to do. Yes, absolutely. And I wasn't, and I'm really proud of this. I was a little unsure of this in my younger years, Bill, but I'm so proud that I wasn't trained by an institution. I wasn't, I, did, I don't have an MFA degree. I wasn't trained to write a certain kind of way. The people that I loved as writers were always in the community. We're always listening uh, for the human voice and what it could do. Or, or, or I was watching people and watching how people made a living. I, I grew up in a household and in a community where the people who worked with their hands and made things, they, they, those were the people that spoke to me in, in, in the loudest ways. I love the, the intellectual um, component of writing. But what I really loved was the elbow grease and the midnight oil and the pencil on the page 
and what it, the kind of work it took to do the work, but also how a writer is made. And when, when, when again, my sense, Phyllis, and there've been other people who have walked up to me and said, you know, I've got this project. And they've told me that project. That's how my last book of poetry on occasional poems got made. It's because someone invited me, thought I had certain sensibility or certain understanding of a community that this might work well. Those other writers who have done books in the series, I have such respect for because of how they approach this subject in their own way as well. Nobody does this. Publishing houses don't really care about the people who don't have the, the, the cachet and the wherewithal and the, the, under, you know, the, the education to read their books on this level. No one goes looking for these readers like the Humanities Council did, the Kentucky Humanities Council. So I was so impressed that this was a priority to a state, to an organization, and to people who sat there and thought, this is how I'll spend my time. We need this now. This, I'll tell you something that I wasn't going to tell you because I, I haven't read this book in 25 years. <laughs> I, don't, I don't read from it at readings because I always find it hard as a fiction writer or a short story writer to like, where do I start? Because then I have to bring people up to speed. And then, so I just don't. But I, when I did get the new copy, I read it cover to cover. And I went, wow, you wrote that at 38? That's, that's not bad. There are a few things <laughs> that I would do differently. But in terms, of, in terms of being where I was as a writer and unfolding my wings into a community and sitting with these women who were saying to me, okay, Nikki, we know you do this for your poetry. You got your metaphors and they, you got your similes. And I was like, oh, okay, you see that. But we don't need that right now. We need you to be clear because this subject is really important. You're telling a truth that we want told in the world and we don't want it hidden behind any kind of thing. Yeah. So there was a, uh, in, in your writing life, there was a before Hartwood and an after Hartwood. And that's, that's very clear. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, tell me about the writing process uh, and tell me about these uh, amazing women. Um, if, if you can paint us a picture uh, of you at the Carnegie uh, at this big, uh, long table. And, and so who is with you at the table? So I'm going to read their names because I haven't seen them in 25 years, right? Bessie Chestnut, Margaret Lane, Rosa Stone Street, Alice Waite, and Alona Johnson. They were members of this amazing organization in Lexington at the time called Operation Read. And they came into the Carnegie. We sat at this long table. I met them for the first time. They had been given the text up until that point, right? And some had come in from their work at uh, uh, fast food restaurants. Another one I remember had come in, she worked at the hospital and, and they, were coming, they were leaving their job to come talk to me about this book. And they had read it, they had made their notes. You know, who, these were women that no one thought about much in terms of a book or writing 
or literacy, you know, they were doing this off on their side to like empower their own lives and make their lives better and make sure they knew what their children were doing at home. And so this project had long wings for them beyond entertainment. This was not, oh, let's go to Joseph Beth and get a book and I haven't read a book in a long time. This was something that they really were investing in in a very personal way. And so we sat there for a couple of hours, line by line. I would read something and then gulp because they might say, I don't know. I don't think you need to say receive, la, la, la. Just say get. I'll say, oh, okay. Let me make a note of that. (laughs) Because we want to go right to the heart of that scene. They were brilliant. They were just... They were untouched by judgment on the outside world about what they knew or what they could say to me. You know, they knew I had I was the writer, but I didn't, as a writer, have uh, untouchable on me anywhere. Or she knows and you don't know. No, that was not the situation at all. I humbled myself to them. I listened because. I really believed in that moment, as I still believe that writing is for everybody. Good writing is for all. Even though we don't market it to all, even though we don't talk about this group of people, I feel like this group of folks needs good writing, just like I need to know that what I'm writing speaks to them. Tell me about the... um, the the challenge uh, that you must have had with the subject matter and the stories themselves. What, what sort of um, process was that? Did you already have those maybe set aside on a shelf and you pulled those off and said, this is going to be a narrative instead of a poem? Um, well, t- tell uh, us about that. No, I, I, what's really kind of remarkable about thinking about, and, and I also looked in my journal books that I've been keeping since I was, you know, 14, because in those journal books, there are maps to how I create what I create. And I, and so the, the beginning seeds of the ideas are there and what I wanted to work up um, into, into the narrative, into the full narrative. But these weren't, these weren't particular subjects that I like took from a poem and made into a longer story but they are subjects and they were subjects. I say are because even though they're 25 years old, they are as current as now. They are as current as today. I laughed when I reread the story that I had included um, Oprah Winfrey in the, in the story at one point. And, and you know, one of the other things that uh, I didn't know then when I was writing the story, but a student of mine interviewed me like five years later and he said to me, he said, Professor Finney, you, you have this um, uh, underlying uh, humor and, and, and you know, you're, you're kind of funny. You like a little funny thing. And I'm like, I do? I was like, no, no, no. I'm very serious. I'm a very serious person. I don't have any kind of humor or anything. And I read this book and I was laughing in these ways that Trina, the protagonist of, of the story, really says the really hard things, um, um, in, in, especially in that beginning scene when she's picking up uh, a, a stranger from the train station. And, and so I, was, I, did, I wasn't aware of this sense of humor that I had 
when I was writing this story, but uh, it's present and it's present and it helps me tell the really hard things that happen in the story. It She kind of lights into um, uh, the, the person that she's, Jenny, Jenny. that's Jenny at the, at the train station, right from the start. She's like, oh, you live in an all white town, I hear. Oh, uh, so you don't want people like me to live in that town, huh? Okay. And then she has on these sunglasses and Jenny doesn't know who in the world this person is because somebody else was supposed to be sent to pick her up. And so they have this back and forth and then they come together. And this is what happens with human beings. It's like they're sitting in a car pre-COVID, no mask on. Trina's got on sunglasses. Jenny has on a yellow sweater that hides her bruises from an abusive uh, marriage that she's in. And slowly the sunglasses come off. Slowly, Trina sees Jenny's bruises. And then the humanity of them both meets before the end of the story. And when I got to the end of the story, I was like, oh, this could have gone on for a couple more chapters. We only had 64 pages, so I had to stop it. <laughs> it stops kind of abruptly. And that's one of the things I would change, but. Yeah. Well, there's humor throughout. I mean, there's humor in the uh, in the beauty shop. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, starts starts off humorous. Um, and and um, hey, you've been there. You, you uh, I'm sure you've been associated uh, in or you've eavesdropped. Uh, no, no, I've uh, been in the chair, Bill. I've been <laughs> in the chair. So not well, I, just always, <laughs> I always I always heard I always learned uh, that to write and gosh, you do it so well. Um, a dialogue, uh, listen to people talk, listen to conversations, eavesdrop, eavesdrop and, and borrow those. You know, August Wilson, the great playwright in Seattle where he lived during his lifetime, he had a place at a bar that was saved for him. And he would go into this bar whenever he would go in and the bartender would save his place. And he'd bring his, I'm sure, I imagine he had a drink, maybe, maybe not. But he would bring his paper and pen and he would listen to people talk. And I just I, I think about that all the time when I'm when I used to go out and sit at a cafe, I would always have paper and pen with me if I heard something, if I heard an inflection or if I heard something funny or I heard the way two people were talking face to face. It always that was my classroom. This still my classroom right now in this life as I catch language and catch conversation and catch how people say a hard thing with a, you know, laughter in my family sometimes was thought of as you laugh to keep from crying. So the laughter gets you through a certain hard place, but the hard thing is still there that you have to face. And that's one of the things I love about this story is that the hard stuff doesn't dissipate and go away. Sometimes it gets even tougher. Um, but you, you wanna, as a writer, you wanna keep a reader with you. You want them to wanna go on to the next page or the next line or the next scene, even though you're taking them through a very tough place. Was it, um, do you remember if it was, I know you remember, uh, intentional, uh, that that the stories in some way uh, were linked and that at the end of uh, of the last story, uh, 
concluding with with Trina and Jenny, you had accomplished an overall theme or were they separate uh, incidences uh, that you were writing about? T- tell me a little bit about that part of it. Yes, they were. It was absolutely intentional to link the, the, the stories. Um, I wanted there to be as many voices of as many different people um, in, in each little section, the secret of Luke town. Uh, when you, when you, when she picks Jenny up from the, uh, from the train station, I wanted to set what was happening. I wanted you to see that there was a young black woman who um, was leaving a job that didn't care about her so much and that she was going to be an entrepreneur and go into business with her mother. I think that that image and that action is a very important, that was intentional because it's risky because you're leaving something that you know. And, and, and one, I remember clearly one of the women sitting at the table saying, I've, been, I've had a dream in the back of my head for so long to do something like that, but I couldn't do it because I just wasn't sure it was gonna work. But Trina, the character, the fictive character gave me what I needed to like do it. Now I'm making a plan to do that. That's the power of good literature. That's why everybody needs it. Not just people over here, but everybody. And so making sure their lives were reflected in this story with these characters was really important to me, really important. And so when we get to the church of the holy whiteness, when this, I mean, we're right now in America, 2021, being besieged by another wave of what I'm over here, you're over there. I'm only going to like people. And I mean this on the computer who like what I say. So we're, we're further apart than we've ever been uh, in this country. And so the things that are going on in this church um, that they are fearful of, right? This is, this is 25, 26, 28, 30 years ago that I'm thinking about our present day America. So that makes me sad, but it also, um, what happens in the end of that scene is I think one of the sort of things that we need to be really aware of what hatred can do and how it can come back around to bite you in, in a way that you don't expect. Yeah, you, you know, when you wrote this um, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when you, I, I'm sure you never thought that um, in, in present day 2021, you, we would have uh, even more divisiveness, even more hatred, uh, even uh, more vitriol. Um, I'll tell you something else that I'm sure shocked you, uh, surprised. I heard you say this um, uh, on video in one of your appearances when you talk so passionately about the woman who had survived Katrina holding up uh, the please sign on the roof and she had misspelled the word. And my gosh, as we taped this podcast just days ago, that same woman or her child is on that roof again. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's sad. It is sad. It is sad. What if we haven't, we haven't learned anything. When you learn something in my family, you do something differently. 
But we are still a nation that wants to win something, that doesn't want to lose our place in the world. You know, I'm teaching a, a course right now in Black Women Writers, Bill, at University of South Carolina. And one of the things we started the semester out was with this brilliant video that Chimamanda Adichie, a Nigerian um, writer, did call the danger of a single story. Mm. If you go on, on YouTube and watch this, it's just, it's a beautiful narrative about what happens when you believe one thing and you don't leave room for a wider view of that thing. And it's gotten like 28 million views because it so speaks not just to America, but to Afghanistan, to you know all countries, to Egypt, to Africa, to Europe to Switzerland, the danger of a single story. I see you this way, you coming at me because you have hair a certain kind of way. I see you coming at me because you speak a certain way, because you don't have books in your arm, because you work at a, a convenience store, a single story, but you don't know the person behind the story. You don't know how, how hard they've struggled to get up that morning to greet you with a smile as an essential worker. We haven't learned anything about not treating people uh, in a way, in a surface kind of way or in a simple kind of way. We want it simple in this country in 2021 and it's not simple. We are complicated human beings, but that, you know what com being complicated means and seeing somebody in a complicated me way means? It takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit more work. That's where literature comes in, but that's where we as human beings also come in, that once we put the book down and we close it up, that we've learned something that we can then instill in our daily lives back into the world and not just do what's always been done. You're listening to uh, Nikki Finney uh, talk about uh, life uh, and uh, circumstances, uh, but also at the center of the our discussion today is Heartwood, uh, a series of short stories that she wrote uh, for, for uh, Kentucky Humanities and the New Books and New Readers series uh, 25 years ago. And it is now being re-released uh, by the University Press of Kentucky. It will be available uh, once again uh, at our Kentucky Book Festival, which our fingers are crossed uh, will be live at uh, Joseph Beth Booksellers on November the 6th. And the, the book is just so lovely and is so relevant to what we're going through today. And I think Nikki would appreciate you picking it up um, uh, at the at the bookstore uh, or ordering it. And we'll be back with uh, a little bit more with Nikki Finney right after this word from our wonderful underwriters at Spalding University. Spalding University's affordable, nationally distinguished low-residency MFA in writing offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration, explore across genres, and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one -on -one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu.
Nikki Finney has accomplished uh, so much in her writing life. Um, and if you'll bear with me here just for a moment, uh, five works of, uh, of poetry. Uh, you've edited anthologies, uh, teaching and mentoring students in several universities, including 24 years at the University of Kentucky, now at the University of South Carolina. The 2011 National Book Award for Poetry for Head, Heads, Head Off and Split. And of course, your acceptance speech uh, at the ceremony um, for the National Book Award, which has been viewed uh, a bazillion times. That's a new uh, number uh, character that they've thought up. Um, and I think one of, what an honor, your inclusion in the African-American Museum of History and Culture in, in Washington, uh, which you're you're on on display there uh, for everyone to see. And it goes on and on. And your latest work um, last year, uh, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, which did come out in 2020. And Nikki, I, I've uh, gone back and, and, and caught up with some of your readings and some of your appearances uh, again on on YouTube. Um, and it seems like you never fail to mention the people who made a difference in your life, the, the teachers, the mentors, um, the people you looked up to, your heroes. And I'd like for you to talk about um, just a couple of them. Uh, and if you would, um, because at the center of, of your being, it seems like to me, is your mother and father. Just, just a few words about them, please. Um, wow. I, you know, it, it sounds, sounds old or old hat maybe is the, is the term, but you need permission in this life to do the things you want to do. And permission comes in a myriad of different ways. My mom, uh, both, both my parents were, are from farming families. My mom uh, is from upstate South Carolina. My dad is from a place called Newberry. And my dad grew up on a farm in uh, Smithfield, Virginia, ham country, he would say. And there's a kind of, because I grew up on my grandmother's farm, my mother's people's farm, I feel connected to land. I feel connected to wonder that, the wonder that I kept in my head as I walked across those 97 acres of land when I was a girl. Um, we went up to Virginia to my father's land um, when I was very small, every second Sunday weekend in August, where I wondered again and I wandered and I really understood my interior space. It's why I am who I am today. My father, when I was a little girl, would pick me up from school. And before we went home where my mom had my chores to do, he would say, let's go to the, let's go to the special place. And we would go to this park and I would lie back in his window. He had an old Buick, deuce and a quarter, big rambling. <laughs> and he, and I, he'd, he'd say, get in position. And Bill, I would lie back in this window, a little girl, with this window to the world. And he would drive 15 miles per hour through the park. And he would say, love child, what do you see? 
And I was like, oh, daddy, the magnolia blossoms are as big as a pie. Early, early, early bad poetry. Um, he would say, no, des describe it deeper than that. Give me a color. So my parents, I mean, I could go on and on with this. My father did that for me, but my mother taught me how to work, how to, how to get up in the morning. She wasn't, and she, you know, and do things before the day started. My grandmother was like that as, as well. My mother made things with her hands. Not beautiful, you know, original pictures, but she would like cut material and make our clothes. And so the creative, you know, bird was always in our house. So this was permission, early permission for me. A little girl, a little black girl growing up in a small Southern town with no writers per se, no bookstores per se. My father met a man who was the bookseller in our county who had a Cadillac with a trunk full of books. <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica on one side, the Bible and other such books on the other and some things in between. I bought my, my father bought me my Nancy Drew books, which are up here on this shelf <laughs> from that man. Anytime, a Cadillac. A Cadillac. Anytime <laughs> this man came to town, he would always stop at my father's house. He knew he was going to make some money at my father's house. My father brought us any book that was in the back of that trunk because he would look at it first and he would go, okay, I'll take that one. That's how I got my books early on in my life. You know, they used to come to my house too in Glasgow, Kentucky, and they but they used to come to the door I never looked out into the in, into the driveway. It, it, it could have been a Cadillac. Yeah, it could have been the same guy, Bill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you, you um, if you could tell this story, I, I, I think if you don't mind, uh, uh, because I, I you mentioned it uh, when Nikki Giovanni was in the audience, and 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 what an influence she was, and what she said to you the first time you gave her uh, some of your work. Oh, wow. This is a classic Nikki Finney story. I'm a 19-year-old sophomore at Talladega College. We have an arts festival every April. This particular year, Nikki Giovanni comes to town. My English teacher, Dr. Gloria Wade Gales, says, okay, Miss Finney, I want you to have three poems ready. We're gonna give them to Miss Giovanni when she gets here. And we don't know what's going to happen, but that's what, that's what we're doing. English teachers who are not just your teachers, but your mama and your auntie and who are involved in your life, who know you just need a nudge, who know you need somebody to believe in you. I was like, oh, no, doc, no, Dr. Gales, I can never give Nikki Giovanni my poetry. Absolutely not. The poetry is ready because she stayed on me like, you know, Phyllis McAdam called me four times. So when Nick, we pick up Nikki Giovanni at the airport, underneath the seat, I've hidden three poems that I've worked really hard on, but I'm afraid to give them to her. She's talking, she's talking to Dr. Gales. Anyway, she stays all week. When we take her back to the airport, Bill, I've been watching her all week going, wow, what a life. To have a life as a poet, working with words. I'll never have that life. It's nothing, that's just my dream. We take her back to the airport. She gets out of the car to catch the plane. And I say, in like 
I can't even understand myself. I'm talking so fast. Miss Giovanni, here's my work. I've worked on it very hard. I hope you like it. And if you like it, could you give me a call back? And I put my head down because I'm like embarrassed. She goes, oh, okay. Let's see what we got here. She goes, three days later, she calls me on the phone booth in my, no cell phone. Sorry, folks. <laughs> in my college the phone and when you when you you know the phone booth is there anybody passing by answers it and then halt calls out to the hall whoever it's for nikki finney nikki giovanni's on the phone everybody's head pops out of the door they go what? i go to the phone booth she goes miss finney this is nikki giovanni my mother and i my mother's an english teacher we've sat at our kitchen table in Cincinnati. We've looked at your work. We've read marked all the poems. And I just want you to know we're sending it to you to back to you tomorrow with all the red marks. And I just want you to know, and this is the thing that rings in my head every single day. Up under all the red is something beautiful trying to happen. Mm. Mm. Bill, when I, to this day, am working on something and it's covered with my edits or covered with question marks, I think of that moment. It's not what somebody says about your work. It's that it can become what you want it to become if you keep working on it. That's my education as a poet and a writer in this, in this country at this time. Now I'm going to put up above my desk, not that, but I'm going to, I'm going to put, make it plain. That's what I'm going to use. Okay. One more last one, because a lot of people, a lot of listeners uh, do know Nikki Giovanni and her, her fame, her name, her work. Uh, but not everyone knows someone else. I've heard you mention Dr. Katie Cannon and, and a quotation that, um, that I wrote down. I hope it's verbatim. Black people were the only people in the United States ever explicitly forbidden to become literate. Changed my life. Changed my life when she said that. Dr. Katie Cannon, if you don't know her, Google her, find her books. She she's a womanist theologian and she lived in North Carolina and Virginia and, and taught at various um, institutions, but she invited me, and this is what I mean, my education as a poet and how I've been in the hands of wise or in the, in the, in the presence of wise um, humanitarians, people who take a, a factoid like that. She sent that to me. She said, and do with it what you will. And I, and I put it in my acceptance speech for the national, um, for the for the national, for the NBA, the National Book Award, and when she put it so concisely, when she put it, never, uh, always, I, it just made sense to me that I would love words like I do, because my grandparents and my great great grandparents and my great 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 grandparents were not allowed to love language and word publicly. We were the only ones who were denied that. Think of the poets that we lost. Think of the writers that we lost because of that denial, because of that hatred for another person 
that I speak of in Hartwood that can kill a person, deny a person an education, deny a person the opportunity to write a book. All those denials we have lost. We don't even know how many poet laureates or, 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 or brilliant minds and creative thinkers we've lost because of what Dr. Katie Cannon taught me that I wanted to then give back out to the world so that you would understand what fuels me as a poet and a human being and what should fuel all of us who have a story, but who don't, aren't too sure, you know, how we do it. Just like Trina would say in Heartwood, just do it, just get it done. And so I'm so glad you mentioned her name. She passed away two years ago, just like that, gone after a, 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 a relatively young life of speaking and, and telling prophecy and, and telling truth to power, speaking truth to power. And I love her. She's my one of my guides in this life, Bill. So I'm so glad you mentioned her name. Thank you so much for everything that, that you have expressed and, and told us about today. I, I, I said that I feel like I've been to church this morning and, and it's, it's a, a wonderful feeling for the soul. Um, when you can let me know that you're going to be back in the neighborhood, yes. we're going to get those women that you sat down with at the Carnegie and, and we're going to, we're going to have a reunion. Oh, Bill, that would be so good. And, um, and we'll celebrate uh, them. Okay. And their their influence on you 25 years ago. Uh, Nikki has been talking about Heartwood, which is being uh, released by the University Press of Kentucky in a 25th anniversary edition. There's a new preface um, uh, that uh, Nikki writes, and it's just wonderful. And I hope everyone will will pick up a copy. Uh, it's priced right. I will have to tell you that. Uh, thank goodness gracious, those books uh, didn't cost much and they still don't. And uh, it's a wonderful um, way to celebrate words and 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 reading and, and you, uh, Nikki Finney. And thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for this opportunity and thank you for what you're doing there. And hello to sweet Kentucky and to, uh, I'm gonna be back soon. So I'll let you know when I come across the state line. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.